Amen, amen. Hey, grab a seat, and as you do, uh, get a Bible in front of you. Genesis chapter 32, Genesis 32. And, and while you flip there, uh, just li listen here to, um, even if you've never read any of this guy's work, you've probably heard of him in church circles, a guy named A.W. Tozer. Um, but A.W. Tozer, in one of his books, I think it was in The Root of the Righteous, uh, made this comment. He said, it's doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. It's doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. Now, you might wrestle with that quote, and it can lead to a whole variety of questions, but I start with that quote today because we are going to watch in the life of Jacob uh, we're going to watch God wound Jacob deeply today. He's going to wound him in a way that will leave him forever changed physically. And I'm going to argue he's going to wound Jacob in a way that's going to lead him forever changed spiritually. Yes, we will still after this point see old Jacob come up every now and then, just like in all of our stories, even after Christ, we see old Brock come up every now and then. But something transformative happens today in the life of Jacob, and it all revolves around a deep wound from the Lord. Now, that sounds a bit harsh. If God is a loving father, why does he wound? Um, let me read what Proverbs 27 verse 6 says, and then try to connect this here. It says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. If so, if the book of Proverbs tells us that the wounds of a friend, a good and godly friend, a wound of a good and godly friend can be trusted, they are faithful, then wounds from God are to also be trusted, and maybe more than trusted, sought out, welcomed. And so as we see how God will wound Jacob today, for the purpose of God's greatest glory and Jacob's greatest good. I've just been praying this week that God would wound me in the preparation for today, and I'm praying this week that God would wound you. And that his wound would lead us to a place today of greater weakness and greater brokenness and greater dependence on him. Because in the midst of this wounding today, we are going to watch as God's going to tell Jacob, you have just prevailed, but it's not a prevailing that we would typically define prevailing. It's a prevailing of weakness. And so I'm praying today we would prevail in weakness as well. And so I want to walk all the way through chapter 32. I'm going to break it in four parts here, but all four of these parts are really about this one thing today. And here's what we have for us today. It's this, that we would embrace the wounds of God that leave you with a life-altering limp. That we together would embrace the wounds of God that leave us today with a life-altering limp. And so let me pray for the Holy Spirit's help as we seek that end today. Father God, will you come now and help us as we open your word? Lord, we really do want to be wounded by you. And we know that your wounds are not uh, for our bad, but they're for our good. Lord, you'll wound us in ways that are ultimately unhealthy in our hearts so that we can uh, see healing happen. You wound our pride so that we'll walk in weakness. You wound our self-dependence so we will live dependent on you. You wound us in our seemingly wholeness so that we will walk in brokenness. 
And so God, we pray that you would accomplish that in our heart today through your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Genesis 32, verse one, part one, what I'm calling the plea, the plea. Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to who? Who's he send messengers to? To Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, thus you shall say to my Lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I've sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord, and here's the plea. Here's why he's sending these messengers, in order that I may find favor in your sight. It's been 20 years it's been 20 years since uh, Jacob had to hightail it out of there because his twin brother Esau wanted to murder him. And now the Lord has made clear to Jacob, go back to your kindred, go back to your family, go back towards Esau. And as he's on his way, he sends messengers ahead that basically say, I'm wondering if I will find favor with you. Now, my question for us is, can you imagine the emotions going on in the heart of Jacob as he basically extends the olive branch back to his twin, who the last interactions were about him killing him? 20 years of a fractured relationship. What is the waiting like for Jacob in receiving these messengers back going, how'd it go? And it's a way more intense waiting that we might feel after a hard text and we're seeing the little bubbles on the other end as they're replying. This is a long waiting. Days, weeks. And finally the messengers come back and look at what they said. Verse six, and the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and he's coming to meet you and there are 400 men with him. So if your last interaction with your twin is him wanting you dead and you hear he's coming with 400 men, do you think this is a positive thing or a negative thing? This no doubt feels pretty negative to Jacob right here. And so Jacob hears this and he begins to plan. Verse seven, then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. So I want you to, I want you to see the absolute desperate, dire plan that Jacob has just put in place here. He has basically just conceded at least half of us are going to be slaughtered. But if we do this, maybe we can save the other half. This is not a divide and conquer plan. This is a divide and run plan. Okay, when Esau gets here, they're going to start attacking. Maybe if we're in two camps, they got to choose which one to attack. And while that other one's getting slaughtered, we'll take off running. This is absolutely desperate. This is desperation at its highest. And yet there is often, if we channel it rightly... Uh, a good place that we go when we're desperate. And it leads us to part two here, what I'm calling the prayer. Jacob actually goes to a good place in his desperate here for a moment. Verse nine, and Jacob said, 
O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Jacob turns to prayer here. And there's some really healthy things in his prayer He starts with an acknowledgement that, Lord, you are the one who directed me back in this direction. You are the one who said that you will do me good. He says, I'm not worthy of all the good that you have already shown me, all the steadfast love, all the faithfulness, all of this provision. I walked over this river carrying my staff, and now look, we're in two camps of just multitude. Lord, that is all you. And then he, he makes this request, Lord, you must deliver me. You must deliver me out of this desperate situation. But in his desperate moments, Jacob turns to prayer. And I'll just say this, nothing deepens our prayer life like desperation does. You with me? Any of you who've walked through desperate, you know that's true. There's an intensity. There's a fervency. There's a consistency. When you find yourself in the land of desperate, that your prayers just look like no other time in your life. In fact, I think what's why you so often will hear people who've walked through deep, desperate, dark days, they'll say, they'll say things like, I would never choose to go back to that circumstance for anything, but man, I'd long for the presence of the Lord I felt in the midst of it. And Jacob, in the midst of desperate, and y'all, this is desperate. When you've been estranged from your twin brother for 20 years, and you're coming thinking he's ready to slaughter the whole camp, I don't know how much more desperate it gets than that. So he turns to prayer, but now coming out of this prayer time, remember the plan going into the prayer time was let's just divide in half. Whichever camp he slaughters, the other one will run. Now coming out of the prayer time, the game plan is tweaked a little bit. Jacob's going, maybe... Maybe it doesn't have to go this way. And look at his plan. It's part three. It's what I'm calling the present. Here's the present. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. Now, what do you have in mind with a present you're sending to your brother after 20 years? You got a good steak in the the icebox, or what's he going to send here? I want you to kind of get into your head the massive nature of this present, the riches that Jacob's about to send to Esau. 200, verse 14, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, 
When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They're a present sent to my lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, here's the plan. Here's the hope. Here's the goal of the present. He thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. I know we can't even really get into our heads what this this caravan of flocks and herds would have looked like. 200 goats. 200 female goats, 20 male goats are set aside and, and then Jacob with some servants, he sends those off in the direction of Esau. And then they, 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 they create some space here and then, and then uh, uh, 200 ewes and 20 rams and, and they're sent off in the direction of Esau and then there's some space and then 30 milking camels and their calves, they take off in a space and 40 cows and 10 bulls and they take off in some space and 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys, they take off and then some space. And so you have this massive movement of animals in the direction of Esau. And Jacob's hope is maybe the first one will meet him and they'll go, hey, this is all for you. And the third, second and the third and the fourth and the fifth. And by the time that Jacob and Esau are standing toe to toe, Jacob will have won his heart over with this act of generosity. That's the hope. But I, wanna, I want you to notice something in verse 21 that then's going to be reiterated in the coming verses as well. It says, so the present passed on ahead of him, ahead of Jacob, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. And so if you can imagine the hundreds of animals that are just sent out of the camp, if you can imagine all of the servants it would have taken to herd those animals in that direction, you are most likely left with Jacob and his immediate family here, which we're going to see. And the Lord has, has, has taken de- Jacob in the midst of a desperate time, coming out of a desperate prayer, and he is beginning to corner him alone. And he's cornering him alone for a purpose, for a reason. Verse 22, the same night he arose and took his two wives his two female servants, and his 11 children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the the stream and everything else that he had. And so if you can picture this, they're at this river, the Jabbok, and uh, they had already sent aside, you know, they'd already sent all of, you know, the, the masses of animals and servants out. Uh, Jacob's left there with his wives, his uh, wives, two servants, his kids, and any of the remaining things. Jacob gets them across before nightfall. But then it says that Jacob himself stays on the other side of the river, the beginning of verse 24, and Jacob was left alone. Now stop right there, because I just want us to be all caught up in our head and in our heart of what I believe God is doing here. Jacob is now standing on the riverbank as night's about to fall all by himself. You have the desperate circumstance, you have the desperate prayer, You have the impending darkness that is coming. 
And those three things make for a beautiful recipe of often when God will show up and do some life-changing things in the midst of our hearts. Desperate times, desperate prayers, and the feeling of impending darkness, God's gonna show up. And before we pick it back up in verse 24, he's gonna show up in one of the most abrupt and shocking ways. And Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. What? No, no, really. Like, if you're familiar with the Bible, you know this story. But if you're not familiar with the Bible here, you're like, hold on. There's been zero character development on this up to this point. Jacob's all by himself on the other side of the river. He knows he's probably not getting much sleep that night because tomorrow means probably toe-to-toe with this twin who wants him dead. And now all of a sudden, he's laid down. And all we're told is, and, and a man wrestled with him, how long? Until the breaking of the day. He's desperate. We are told he's distressed. He's laying in the darkness. And now all of a sudden, rustling in the bushes, he probably at first thinks a predator, and out comes a man. Big paw on his shoulder, and they're in the midst of a wrestling match. Now remember something. This actually happened, and Jacob is just a normal man. At first, he probably thinks this is just some weird human from the area, and Jacob is just no doubt reacting, responding, defending himself. But the wrestling match just keeps going. They wrestle until daybreak. High school sports trivia, how long is a high school wrestling match? No one knows, right? No no one watches it. Okay, I was a wrestler. I was a wrestler. I know you all think we're weird. A high school wrestling match is six minutes long. And it's six minutes of grueling. They wrestled till the breaking of the day. At some point in that, no doubt, Jacob went, This ain't normal. I'm not wrestling a mere mortal here. Something bigger is going on. And if Jacob has any doubt of that, it's all made clear with one touch from his foe. Verse 25, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob... He touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. So picture this. They're wrestling, they're wrestling, they're wrestling well into the night, well into the early morning hours. The sun is about to come up, and with just one touch, this foe puts Jacob's hip out of socket, one of the most excruciatingly painful things that can happen to the human body. With just one touch, Jacob's hip is dislocated. He's now exhaustingly weary, and he is in excruciating pain. And Jacob, in that moment, has to know there's something divine about this. No man could just do that. And then an interaction. Then he said, this is the, 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 the foe of Jacob. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken But Jacob said, he's like, I'm not throwing the towel in. 
And listen, this, let me read it and then I'll get to it. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you, what? Unless you bless me. That request, I believe, isn't the old Jacob trying to scheme and prevail over this. I believe this request is one of of a pure heart, an increasingly purifying heart. One in which he is not standing victorious over him, but is instead clinging to the heel, just like he did to his brother coming out of the womb. And he's saying from a place of brokenness, from a place of pain, and from a place of exhaustion, I need your blessing. Why do I say this? Because another book of the Bible gives us commentary on this. In Hosea chapter 12, verse four, here's how Hosea talks about this. He says, Jacob wept and begged. This is Jacob weeping and begging. But who is he weeping and begging to? Who is the mysterious shadowy figure that's come out to wrestle? He himself in a few verses will tell us who he believes it was and he says, I've come face to face with with God. Whatever you believe this to be, a theophany, an appearance of God in the Old Testament, a Christophany, an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ. One thing we have to believe about this is Jacob is wrestling with God in whichever way that God has chosen to reveal himself to Jacob. This is a wrestling match between a schemer and a deceiver who's built his life on it and a good and holy and gracious God who has come down and said, because I love you enough is enough, I must break you. I must break you. And when God comes down to break us, It's the best thing that could ever happen to us. When God comes down to break us, it leads to the brokenness that he says goes up before him as an act of worship. And God has come down to break Jacob. Let me go, for the day is broken, but Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name, what's your name? Your name's, my name's Jacob. My name's Deceiver. My name's Heel Grabber. Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have what? And have prevailed. Think about that statement. The Lord has just changed his name from Jacob to Israel. Jacob will now be the namesake of this nation that God had promised to Abraham. And he's looked down at him, clinging to him with zero leverage and a dislocated hip and exhaustingly weary. And he looks down at him and he says, you have finally prevailed. And Jacob has to get something at that moment. The picture of prevailing for the Lord is not a picture of scheming your way to this. The picture of prevailing for the Lord is him laid down with his face in the dust, just clinging for any blessing that God will give him. 
And with his face in the dust down here, just holding on, the Lord looks down and he says, that's prevailing in my kingdom. Y'all listen to me. This is prevailing in the kingdom of God. We spend our whole lives trying to get powerful, trying to be significant, looking for things that we would say are prestigious. And the Lord says, you want to know what prevailing looks like? It looks like when you finally realize you're absolutely worn out, weak, and have nothing to do but just get on your face and cling to his feet. And he looks at Jacob in that moment, exhausted in excruciating pain. And he says, you've spent your life wrestling with God and with men. And you've always been trying to figure out how you can stand at the end of those wrestling matches with your arms in the air, triumphant. And you finally prevailed, broken and weak, doing nothing more than just holding on. So Jacob called, verse 30. So Jacob called the name of that place, Peniel, Why do you call it that? That word uh, means the face of God. So Jacob's going to give his assessment of who he's just been wrestling with here. Saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Now picture this scene, okay? Okay. No doubt as we've been studying Jacob's life, there's images that have come to mind. An image of walking in, like covered in furs to deceive his dad to get his brother's blessing. Uh, We've probably had images in our head of, of, of what it was like when he woke up from that dream where he saw the angels ascending and descending on the ladder. We we no doubt had images of how he was interacting with Laban. I I want I want verse 31 to be a picture in our head as we read it because I think it is one of the most iconic pictures of Jacob's life that we could ever embed there. It says, the sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. And so as the sun rises that next morning, remember his family, uh, his wife, his kids, whatever was left in the camp, they had already crossed the river And as the sun is rising the next morning, you you have this image of the silhouette of Jacob making his way to them, limping his way to them. And no doubt as his family would have seen him coming in the distance towards him or as he would have gotten to the camp and they would have seen their husband or their dad limping, the natural question would have been, the natural question would have been, whenever God takes us to the mat, Everyone who's known us, after that encounter when God finally breaks us, they come up and they say, what happened to you?
because the pride is drained away. And the confidence in ourself, the unhealthy confidence in ourself is drained away. The dependence is replaced with brokenness. And anyone who's known us before the Lord breaks us and after the Lord breaks us has to just look and say, what happened to you? Now, he comes limping to his family. He's going to come limping to his brother. He's going to come limping, looking to make some wrongs of the past right. He's going to come limping, carrying the namesake of the nation that God had promised to Abraham. He's going to come limping, exhausted, tired, broken, as weak as he has ever been in his own strength, and yet as strong as he has ever been in the weakness given him by God. The epitome of what Paul will later write, for when I am weak, then I am And then this chapter ends with a really important verse. Because this verse tells us that this is about much more than just Jacob's story. The covenant community of Israel understood that this wasn't just about Jacob's story, it was about their story. And it's not just about their story, it's about our story. And they actually commemorated something in the community to always bring themselves back to remembering what God did to Jacob right here. Look at what it says. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. They actually created a ritual to commemorate what God had done to Jacob for the purpose of them remembering what God desired to work in their heart and what God desires to work in ours. To bring us to the place of weakness and of brokenness and of dependence. I relate a lot to Jacob's story. And my guess is you do too. That it's so easy, it's almost, um, it's almost by default that we find ourselves trying to scheme and devise and strive our way towards what we or our culture or the people around us would define as prevailing. And God instead invites us not to have to scheme and devise and strive. He just invites us to come tired, weak, and broken and hold on.
And so as we end our time here today, I wanted to do something a bit different. I just wanted to give a few minutes here of quiet for the Lord to take us to the mat, so to speak, where he needs to take us to the mat. And again, if that sounds like brutal to you, it's not brutal, it's beautiful when God does it. If it sounds harsh to you, it's not harsh. He's gentle about it. Is it convicting? Yeah. Does it sting? Yeah. But just a few minutes for the Lord to come speak into your heart and just bring any areas to light where you've just been striving in your own strength. Uh, to bring any areas to your life where instead of being weak, vulnerable, transparent, you've been prideful, self-dependent, and unwilling to show any chinks in the armor that you have. A few moments of quiet if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, because frankly, you're like, I don't know what I need to be saved from, for the Lord to bring you to your knees by revealing your sin to you. A bringing to your knees that would allow you to rise victoriously, knowing that you have nothing else to cling to but Christ. I've been praying all week that God would go after the pride of our hearts in these moments. we would see maybe we really aren't as good as we think we are and maybe we really don't have it all together like we think we do and maybe we don't need to and maybe we don't need to put on the facade like we do and if you walked in here and you're like dude I've already been taken to the mat don't even give me three more minutes of silence of it. I would just say, like Hosea 12 says about Jacob here, just weep, beg, and hold on. And let him come minister to your, to your heart in a prevailing way as you do. Let's just get quiet and let the Lord do whatever he wants in our hearts in these moments. The worship team will lead us out of this time here in a few minutes.